American Battlefield Trust members have helped save 50,000 acres in 24 states. This land stretches chronologically from the Lexington Green to Appomattox Courthouse and geographically from Minnesota to New Mexico. If you would like to assist their efforts in preserving these battlefield lands in the United States, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information, please log on to shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester or phone the George Tyler Moore Center directly at 304-876-5429. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I'm so glad that you're joining us this week. This is a fantastic presentation by my friend James Taub. Now, James Taub has been friends with me for a couple years now, and he is a fellow military historian, and I thought it would be great to have him on to talk about the uh, present state of the military history field and where we think the field is heading in, in the near future. There's always a change in the history field in some way, like a lot of other fields of study. Uh, as far as, you know, if you study science or you study anything else, there's always change involved in that. Far too often, uh, the history field can become complacent. And James and I spoke about that a little bit, and we spoke about uh, how we see the future of our field. Now, I'm a trained military historian, and so is James. But our ways of doing military history are a little bit different. Uh, James is very operational in his coverage of military history. I'm more, I like the personal. I like what the average soldier would have experienced in the field. Uh, that's just my way of doing it. I like to go from the lowest rung to the highest. And uh, James likes to do the top-down kind of uh, operational history. So together... Uh, we make a good pairing because it's like salt and pepper in a meal. Uh, but we're, we're two different uh, types of military historians. And uh, it's really good to hear from someone who studies it a different way. And together, we can work uh, to do some awesome things. And we have some projects we're thinking about in the future. But a few years ago, historians like us may never have spoken with one another together at a conference or on the same panel or anything like that. We have been two drastically different ways of looking at one event. Uh, I'm hoping that we can bring that all together here soon and bring panels together who are of uh, different eras of history, different mindsets about one particular facet of history. I think that would make our field grow a little bit more, and James is of the same thought process. 
Uh, so we, we spoke for a little over a half hour, and he currently works for the World War I Centennial Commission, but his time with them is coming up. Uh, it's coming to an end, and he is going to be basically a, a history-free agent. Uh, so I wanted to give my friend a little bit of airtime to be introduced to a new audience, and uh, who knows? You know, that may open a door for him. You never know, and it's always good to help your colleagues and friends with that possibility. So I was happy to have him on. Uh, we spoke uh, for a little while, and uh, it, it went really well. I thought we, we had a good discussion. I hope that you do enjoy it. Uh, for some of you, military history isn't your thing, but you're going to see two different avenues of military history here. Uh, I'm definitely not a tactician, even though I studied as a kid, I studied Napoleonic tactics. I'm not some uh, tactician who just talks about that. Uh, I like to talk about the little minute things that make something work. So you're going to see two different uh, ways of interpretation here, but that's what makes our field great. And I was so happy to have James on. I do hope that you uh, subscribe to the podcast, that you rate the podcast, share it with your friends. Uh, we have all kinds of different things coming up that we're going to be talking about. Even though I'm a military historian, I like to branch out and learn new things and talk about art and architecture and stuff like that. So that's going to be coming up soon as well. So don't get discouraged uh, because I'm having a, a little military history fit here for this episode. Uh, there's a lot more coming, and I'm so appreciative of each of you who subscribes to this podcast, has rated it, uh, I'm, I'm just so very thankful for all of you listening in. So without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce you to my friend James Taub as we discuss the current state and future, in our opinion, of the military history field. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. I'm so happy to have one of my friends on here. James Taub is on the program, and uh, you may remember James from back in October, if you follow me on Facebook. We actually did a live stream interview from the Western Front Association East Coast Branches Conference. And uh, James was hanging out there, and I pulled him on, uh, kind of as a filler, and uh kind of weird that he got the most views out of everybody, including uh, Dr. Ed Lengel and, and a few other great authors. And so my buddy James got the most views, and uh, I figured, what the heck, we need to bring him on the podcast. So James, thanks for coming on, buddy. Yeah, no problem. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And uh, you have done some great stuff over the last few years, in, including with your, uh, with your educational background. Would you like to fill everybody in on... Uh, the past couple of years for you as far as your education and uh, what you've been working on? Uh, yeah, sure. So I um, I graduated from my undergraduate up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania from a school called Dickinson College um, in 2015. And I was an intern at the Civil War Trust, now the American Battlefields Trust, as well as uh, for the National Park Service at Gettysburg. Um, and after that, I went on to uh, get my master's degree from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. 
and uh, with a f focus on my main love, which is uh, British military history focused on the First World War. And now I'm back in the U.S., starting to wrap up work here, working with education for the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission, and uh, and then looking uh, for for bigger and better things and moving on, continuing with that World War One work and general military history work. Yeah, James and I are both. Uh military historians by trade i guess you could say right uh we we, yeah. both, we both got into it uh, for that reason we were both uh younger guys at the time and uh we're we're interested in in military history and uh james went the world war one route and i kind of went all over the map uh trying to figure out all this stuff but james has become more of the uh he he falls in the line more of the tactical history of uh of conflict i guess you would say james right yeah, no, I, th I definitely think um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in operational histories right. and really combining that with social histories to form an overarching narrative. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I'm, I'm really trying to do with not only World War One, but, you know, being back here on the East Coast, you can't not be interested in the Civil War or the Revolutionary War mm -hmm. um, is, uh, you know, really trying to take the best of what historians are creating now, which is very heavily social history. And uh, obviously, a few uh, weeks ago, you interviewed interviewed Dr. Carmichael mm -hmm. on his book on the common soldier in the Civil War, taking that and applying it to traditional operational histories, because uh, I think it's really important that while we understand this new sort of background of the social history of the soldier, we, we keep in mind that there's still a lot of work to be done as we talk about what we would consider the more traditional military history. Yeah, I I agree totally. The the uh, interesting part is James is is along that operational and, and tactical end of it, and I've kind of fallen into more of the Carmichael vein, uh, where where I've gone more to the personal uh, level on things. And if you go back ten twenty years, uh, historians like James and I, we would just be like in different on different planets, <laughs> really, right? It's it's kind of like now yeah. we're, now we're talking with each other uh, more so. And that's going to just create all kinds of opportunities from great uh, military historians of all veins, I think. And uh, we're going to work together on some future stuff, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Very excited. Yeah. Uh, how how has your international focus uh, made you a better historian than you were before you left the States? Um, I think it's really given me an opportunity to kind of look outside of what we're taught in the United States. and. And I don't think that's, you know, related to a specific form of teaching or a specific topic. I think that when we're looking at military history, it's becoming increasingly clear that eras, uh, as well as, you know, themes, whether that be social military history or tr traditional operational military history, really have their blinders on very heavy, heavily. And, and folks aren't really interacting with one another to exchange ideas outside of their eras. Mm -hmm. um, so coming back to the U.S. now with my experience and my continuing work in the British Army and, and their history, um, there's a lot of interesting opportunities I think that brings for people who want to full-time study the American Civil War, for example. Um, you know, the major theme for British military historians currently who focus on the First World War and increasingly growing as we get to the 75th and, and further anniversary to the Second World War is this idea of an adapting army, a learning army, 
the British army that goes into combat in 1914 is not the same army that leaves combat in 1918. And, and people like to talk about that now as, you know, they entered the war on the horse, they left on the tank and in the airplane. But there's a lot more to that. They're consistently changing how their organization uh, uh, works. They're consistently changing how their tactics work. Uh, the term that is used now and has been pretty much confirmed is this idea of the learning curve. They, they were consistently improving upon their mistakes, and there were, of course, tons of tons of mistakes that occurred as they were trying to change and adapt to the conditions of combat on the Western Front and as well in uh, the Middle East. But it was something that they eventually got, uh, got competent enough at that by 1918 they were the predominant army on the Western Front, and they were able to fight a combined arms battle alongside their French and their American allies, which if anybody has watched the discussion we had back in November, you know, it was an allied victory on the Western Front, a coalition victory. Mm -hmm. So we are started, you know, coming back to the U.S., I, I'm seeing that a lot of those ideas aren't being necessarily applied to American topics. And, you know, while I continue to focus on the British Army in the First World War, it's it's really growing with me that there are ways in which we can apply the ideas that British and European historians overall, because these arguments are also being given to the French and the German armies, as well as by professors like um, uh, Grote Lucien, who wrote the AF way, way of War on the American Army in the First World War. These ideas are applicable to you know the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia or the Army of the Tennessee, Army of Tennessee. Um, so. I think that there's some great stuff that we can really utilize there, especially mm -hmm. if you look at unit histories. So, uh, which is a you know an old-fashioned sort of sort of topic that was started by the veterans themselves, but I think you'll see is slowly starting to expand out again because units provide a perfect case study to look at various ideas of the Civil War, whether it's tactics or or social histories and that's something that academics in the uk have really picked up on there is a plethora of divisional histories focusing on british divisions that have come out in the past 20 to 30 years um, focused on how each individual division learned and changed throughout the war their tactics their logistics their organization the morale um, and it would be very interesting to see apart from a traditional history how that argument those arguments of change and adaption can be applied tactically to the armies of other eras. Oh yeah, that's that's a fantastic point because uh, when we were when I was talking to Dr. Carmichael the other week, we were talking about adaptability and and overcoming certain situations. And a lot of people think, uh, well, you know, the the soldier of the Revolutionary War or the soldier in the Civil War, uh, you know, they had to learn it in different ways. That's true, but the overarching theme of adaptability is still there. Uh, I think it's it's it'd be an awesome thing to just have a one-topic discussion, you know. Uh, let's just say adaptability, and you have people from different eras talking about adaptability, you know, yeah. and how it's well, how it's alike and how it's different for each era. Well, yeah. absolutely, because it totally exists in each era, mm -hmm. and I think that you have um, really great historians focused on, say, the American Civil War, like Earl Hess who's writing these tactical studies of the armies and talking about how they're dealing with change and adaption. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard really great things about his new book on the Atlanta campaign yes. um, and how that deals with it. And it's being done for earlier time periods too. Um, 
for any of your listeners, you know, I'm going to dig back into my, my backbone as a British military historian here, but for any of your listeners who are interested in the 18th century, um, Stephen Brumwell's book called Redcoats, which deals with the British soldiers who fought in North America during the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. really touches on that, as well as a book by Matthew Spring called With Zeal and Bayonets Only, which focuses on the British Army and their tactics and operations during the American Revolutionary War and how they really had to adapt and change for combat in North America. Um, so it, it's a theme that covers any conflict that you really want to talk about going back to the, I mean, we could talk about how the Romans adapted against the Carthaginians. Right. It's, it's, it's something that's there. Right. Um, and it's something that I, I believe is, is worth digging into a little bit more for topics like the American civil war. Um, and of course, even more so for, for the first world war and the second world war, just because we've been doing it doesn't mean we should stop. Right. Um, Cause it's, it's still a great theme. There's still a lot more we can learn about it. Do you think that level of uh, personal adaptability uh, was kind of lost when we talked about operational history for a while? Or do you think it was always there? It was just kind of like, you know, just underneath the surface. I think it I think that it's there. And I think that it, I think that a lot of times it's a lot easier just to write a play by play history. Mm-hmm. So let's take, for example, um, and I'm going to totally use this night to throw out my friend's books. I'm going <laughs> to say that. But let's take let's take, for example, you know, uh, there is an operation in uh, early December of 1917 on the Passchendaele Ridge, um, which is a failed operation by two British divisions, the 32nd and the 8th, to kind of expand the salient that would be created by the third battle of the also called the Battle of Passchendaele. And uh the only references you see to this action are, you know, play-by-plays. There's, we moved here, we did this, we moved here, and we did this. Mm-hmm. And we fought these guys, and we suffered this many casualties, and then we moved here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see that for a lot of areas, and you see a lot of new books coming out on specific units or specific battles that are just that. And it doesn't matter what area we're talking about. Right. There will always be that sort of popular history, because frankly, if you write it, in a certain way, it's a good read. It's an entertaining read for nerds like us who are really into that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We want to go and look at it academically, take this Passchendaele Ridge operation. There's a new book by Dr. Michael LeCicero, um, who's a PhD from the University of Birmingham and is uh, currently working for a book publisher over in the UK. He takes this operation and, and dissects it. He, you know, we talk about why these certain things happen. Why did they choose? You know, you always have to ask why. Any good investigator, any good historian is asking why. Why do people, why did these divisions choose to attack at this certain point? Why did it fail? What did they do wrong? What did they take away from it? What were the mistakes? What were the successes? You know, so all of these questions need to be asked. And, you know, you can also take that with some of the social history, combine that social history that both of us are so into, Mm -hmm. into that traditional military history with a little bit of investigation. You've got a great history. The units that are attacking on the Passchendaele Ridge are Scots. They're English. There's an Irish battalion. Uh, And so and these are guys from across the UK. They are believing Canadians and Australians originally. And so they're going to write a distinct social history of the war. And a lot of these guys choose not to write about this this particular night action because it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why do all of these things occur is is the question we need to ask more often. And 
I'm trying to be better as a historian when I actually write and consistently after I write a paragraph, I ask myself, why did I write that? What's the point of that? And so looking at traditional military history, I think there is so much room for expansion because historians before us only wrote books. Right. So um, investigating exactly why certain decisions were made, why certain actions were taken, why certain engagements resulted in the ways they did are, I think, you know, something that we can't throw aside. Because to move on to the social understanding and understanding why Private So-and-so wrote about whatever war he was fighting in the way he did, you still need to have a basic understanding of the actions that person was engaged in, and you still need to understand the organization that he was in. Uh, you can't simply play off his background, which is an incredibly important aspect, but you need to understand the, the, the overall organization that that person was in as well. So that's why I think there's still so much more room for traditional military history and operational military history to expand. Um, I love, there's so many great social histories out there, but you know, I, there are countless ones that come across that basic organizational uh, mistakes really in the writing. And I think that we really do need to revisit as historians, that basic level mm -hmm. of history. Now we don't need to revisit it as historians were doing in, you know, the 1930s to the 1950s, Right. which is the, the bugles and the flags and the glory and all that. We, we understand war is horrible, right. you know, and we're doing a much better job of understanding the social impact of war and the psychological impact of war upon people engaged in it. Mm -hmm. But we can't throw away that traditional understanding uh, because with that comes the basis of understanding of, of everything else. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, we can understand the impacts a war had and study the the economic and the social and environmental impacts even uh, that a conflict had. But in its heart, military history is about the military. Mm -hmm. So we do need to understand that. Where do you think, um, this might be a little, this might be a queasy moment for some people to think about, but where do you think we went wrong as military historians back in the day? Because we didn't, because we, and I'm not saying we personally, I'm saying we as military historians and we as a field. Where do you think we lost our way if we did it all? Because it seemed like it was it was a hot thing for years and years and years to study. And then it constant and it just consistently dropped for years. And then it became an idea of, well, if you're into it, then that means you're a warmonger or you're into combat or you're into whatever. Uh, when in actuality, I think that a lot of friends of mine who are military historians treat conflict like a doctor treats like, uh, you know, a virus or AIDS or something. And I hate to put it that way, but you look at it to eradicate it or you look at it to understand it so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Where do you think well, like we might have uh, missed the, uh, you know, it, it wasn't sexy anymore. Let's put it that way, you know, where it was like, yeah, why, why are you studying that? That's depressing or, or whatever. Well, I don't think we went wrong anywhere per se. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, the, the, the trend you see with the social military history comes out of the 1960s and the anti-war movement mm -hmm. uh, associated with the Vietnam War and other wars shoot off from the Cold War. Um, but I, you know, that, I don't think that, any anybody's been wrong mm -hmm. i i don't think that anybody has you know <laughs> belligerently 
tried to squash traditional military history. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think that what needs to happen necessarily is, I think instead of saying people went wrong, I would say people put blinders on. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand and appreciate the times that those historians were living in. And I know a lot of listeners were alive in these times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, you think about where we are now. I <laughs> don't want to show my age, but I there's only been eight years of my life where the United States has not been in a war. Right. 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 And we I have I can't remember a time when. You know, they weren't talking about some conflict and some U.S. troops were casualties. You know, you see it and it's nothing like the people who went through the Second World War, the Vietnam War, any other conflict. But we're a country that's that's been through a lot over the past 25 years. Mm -hmm. And and we, you know, so I, I think a lot of that has to do with who we are now. And so I don't think you can blame people for not wanting to study traditional military history. I don't mm-hmm. think I think people are looking at history like people throughout time, you know, eternally are going to look at the past to better understand. Them. Mm-hmm. So the, the real idea here, I think, is that we need to appreciate that while we're trying to understand in our present, we need the context of the past. Right. We can't simply look at the past through the lens of the present. We need this this context, and this is an argument you hear people using for multiple different historical topics. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, let's let's put this in in terms of a World War One and a Civil War perspective, because because mm-hmm. of me and because of who I know your listeners are, and also because I love the Civil War too. Right. We can't on in 2019 sitting here talking to each other simply say, you know, General Burnside was an absolutely horrible general for ordering those assaults at Fredericksburg, and we can't say that General Haig was an absolutely horrible general for the July 1st, 1916 assaults on the Somme, mm-hmm. unless we get the context that they were making those decisions. Right. We can say, oh, Burnside was throwing brigade after brigade after brigade against Maurice Heights. That's horrible. And we could say that was horrible, and that was a bad decision, but why? Why did he feel that that was necessary and what was he lacking as a general mm-hmm. that that made him make those decisions so that we today can say oh you know probably shouldn't do that again mm-hmm. um right and there's you no know, same with haig we could talk about the learning curve and and how the british army adapted but in the end july 1st 1916 the first day of the battle of the somme is is a classroom military disaster in many ways but unlike burnside haig learns from that and, and changes and, and adapts throughout the rest of the year on the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, put yourselves in the shoes of the people then without thinking about yourself now. And mm-hmm. and I think that that will help remove part of it. Uh, you know, we were just talking before. I'm in no way consider myself pro-war. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've never been in the military. Um, right. And I, I am very active, uh, promoting anti-war mm-hmm. um, thoughts, but it's it, I, I still have this interest partly because I think a better understanding helps prevent. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I also think that there's, you know, there, there are very, there are tons of topics that are wholly worth studying when you have the context of the other Yeah, it's it's one of those, uh, there's always been that line of uh uh what was that lines led by mules 
the lions led by donkeys. Lions yeah, led by donkeys. Yeah. See, there's there's the military coming out. Military yeah. history coming out. I mean, I'm going with mules. Yeah. But lions led by donkeys, and it's like, could we say the same thing about a different conflict? It's not just World War One, you know. And it's like, okay, here's a parallel between, uh, you know, Hague and Burnside's, or you know, et cetera, where we could be like, yeah, possibly we might be able to say that about this. But again, it's that context contextual look at it like you say far too many of us want to sit back and say well you know Hegg was an idiot da, 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 da. and that feels more like chest thumping than anything else you know yeah because well, you're, it's what's your proof or what's your it, what's your footnote yeah <laughs> it's very easy you know and this this doesn't have to specifically be a statement about history it can be a statement about anything you know mm-hmm. it's very easy to find someone else's flaws right you know when looking from the outside right and so I think the question that we as historians looking at military history have to say is, you know, why were these flaws present and did they take any steps to correct them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, were these even considered flaws at the time? Let's take Haig, for example. Haig was not considered at all a villain in the years after the First World War or a bad general. He was the guy that won the war. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that beat the German army. I mean, there's a perfect example of this, and I think we talked about this back in November, but there was a statue of Field Marshal Haig outside of Edinburgh Castle, which was the traditional heart of the military in Scotland, and it was right out in front, right before you walked into the castle. And now it's actually been moved way into the back. Uh, you have to cut through like certain alleys, and you go into a square called the Medical Square to find it. And that just shows the how the opinion of Haig changed, and it was in the 30, 40 years after his death, wow. right? right? So it's it's people in later times formulated a different opinion of him based on what they were living in then, because it was the 60s mm-hmm. when it was it was the height of the anti-war movement when uh, the lions led by donkeys argument came out. Mm-hmm. So and it's an easy argument to make. You know, you see if you look from the outside, you see British generals in chateaus 30 miles behind the line directing assaults that result in thousands of casualties. Right. But at the same, you know, at the same time, put yourself back in 1919, 1920. They're just recovering from the war. You have a field marshal who defeated the German army. And, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, the German army wasn't defeated in the field. That's actually something that comes out of the Nazis, the stab in the back myth. Right. The German army was thoroughly defeated in the field in 1918 mm-hmm. by the combined might of, of the British, the French and the Americans. Um, and so but then you have this this general who comes back to Britain mm-hmm. and he's one of the leading uh, leading officials in helping soldiers with charities with ex-servicemen's associations. Mm-hmm. So he was considered to be this great guy. Right. The Somme was a black mark, but there are black marks in any victorious army. Right. I mean, look how long it took the Army of the Potomac to beat the Army of Northern Virginia. Yeah. They won in the end, but there's tons of black marks on the way. Right. Um, so it's, 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 it's how we change our perception over time that I think is something I, I'm particularly interested in, the historiography of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we really need to, to understand. Um, and, you know, same goes for, for people like, you know, I think one of the closest equivalents I can think of for the Civil War are guys like McClellan, who the soldiers loved. Right. But obviously there's there's many more politics involved with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's something that has changed dramatically over time. 
um, from a guy who was considered to, yeah, he was opponent of Lincoln, but he was considered to be someone who was cautious with his men's lives to the guy who could have destroyed Lee on multiple occasions and failed to do so. Right. So, right. Um, it's, it's so the, the, there's evidence for this everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've met people who, going back to the World War One era for a second, I've met people who hate Pershing because of the last hours of World War One. You know, they're like, why would you be attacking on November 11th? Uh, especially people who, like, lost an ancestor, like, in November of 1918. Yeah. There's we'll a see. lot of a lot of animosity <laughs> there. And it's like, okay, well, why did this, not the death, but why was the attack occurring? And, yeah. And what was going on in that? And some people just don't want to look at that because, you know, their great-grandfather was killed on November 10th or something mm-hmm. like that. And so it's it's more of a personal feeling kind of a thing instead of a historical look at, at an event. Like you and I would look at it differently than someone who lost someone on November 10th. We'd be like, well, why did they oh. launch that attack? You know, why was that going on? And we would look at it with an open mind. Uh, some people, you have... You have people who are, are Monday morning quarterbacks, and you have people who have a lot of feelings towards it because they lost someone, you know, and, yeah. and then they formulate an opinion and they stick to it, which is natural. Um, but, you know, we're trying to g- rebel against that in a way. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people who falls into the camp of I'm not sure how I feel about Pershing. Mm-hmm. Um not for his November 11th and his last few weeks of the war mm-hmm. fighting, but in everything he did <laughs> during the first world war. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's, um, you know, it, that's something that I is needs to be comprehended. I think by anybody looking at this mm-hmm. and it's once pe- someone grasps the basic facts of whatever topic they're studying, we need to do a better job of then introducing them to investigation and and sort of theoretical arguments to mm-hmm. to improve their understanding. Mm-hmm. I think people should be asking questions um, and never take anything at its face value. Right. Um, it is so you know, and that could be applied to so many so many arguments. But mm-hmm. and um, yeah, you know, especially with the First World War. I think the First World War, because it's been so long that uh, this lines led by donkeys sort of argument has existed and it's entered public memory and, and the public idea of the First World War, it's it's going to and has been a long process to sort of change that in terms of the public perception. And I think with the eras like the American Civil War, which now over the past five, six years has become such a hotbed mm-hmm. of debate because of Confederate monuments, because of memory of the Confederacy, right. I think that the the American Civil War as a time period will start to be looked at again, obviously socially, because it needs to be, you know, mm-hmm. it's one th- we still very much need to have the majority of the public understand that the American Civil War was fought over slavery mm-hmm. at its root, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And but then looking at it from, you know, the military aspect of the American Civil War, I think that we need to completely revisit it. I think that we really don't have a good understanding of what a Civil War battle was fought, like uh, was fought, how it was fought, excuse me, and and why they were fought in the ways that they were. Right. Uh, look at the wars that were fought around it, the Crimean War, the, the, the Russo-Japanese War, the Franco-Prussian War. Right. 
those wars are all fought very differently to the American Civil War. And why is that? Um, you know, it's those wars all have examples of infantry assaulting uh, frontal fortifications and, and in some cases succeeding. But you very rarely see that in the American Civil War without an extenuating circumstance. And this is something a good friend of mine, Eric Burke, uh, who's doing his Ph.D. down at UNC, have been talking about. It's there's it's the American Civil War is increasingly to me seeming like an anomaly in the overall timeline of military history. And I think that there's so much room for people who want to study the American Civil War to to see to ask that question. Why is that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. a, we, we consistently refer to the American Civil War as being outdated tactics with with modern weaponry. Is that really true? Right. Because the casualty percentages are about the same for all the other wars that are occurring on both sides of it, mm-hmm. um, including the First World War. You just see larger numbers of, of casualties because there are more people overall. Right. So, so what is you know? I think that there's there's lots of amazing things we can start to discuss uh, in terms of the military history of the American Civil War, and a lot of conflicts as well. You know, mm-hmm. this you know this is something that's just opening up in the Second World War um, as we go farther and farther away from the conflict itself. I mean, this year's the 75th of D-Day. Right. Um, so, and you know, you, you've seen this with the American Revolution as well with uh, historians really starting to argue and getting into the public mind that it wasn't, you know, this elite British army lining up, firing against Americans who were hiding in woods. Because it was mm-hmm. Americans who were lining up more often than it was the British. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's the, 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 you can see tons of examples from other eras of how this is working. And it's time for historians from all these eras to finally get their heads together and discuss each other's topics. Right. And really start to shoot these ideas. Yeah, I mean, I I would uh, we see it all the time in the field where it's like, okay, this this conference is strictly on the revolution. This conference is strictly on the Civil War. Or this conference is on uh, historical memory of World War One or whatever else. And it's like, why can't we just like cross pollinate here? You know, why yeah. can't we? Why can't we come together and formulate something an even bigger narrative of a certain topic? And come yeah. up with a human experience of something based on the context of why an attack happened and et cetera, et cetera, instead of dividing all of us up and saying, well, you know, I don't talk about that era because it's not my jam, but we might have something uh, in common. You you could talk about World War One, and I could talk about the Revolution or the Civil War or, or vice versa or whatever, and we're still going to come up with some great topics to cover in each other's lane and we can still sit on the same panel, you know, oh, absolutely. and that's, yeah. and I think that's where, in my opinion, I think that's where part of our field is going with the new, new students and the new crowd, uh, you know, moving in that direction. Do you think that we could be heading in that, in that direction as far as we're, we're going across, I don't want to say party lines, you know, yeah. but we're, we're going across era lines here where we're like, well, hey, you're staying World War One. That's cool. I have something to draw off that from the Mexican-American War. Oh, yeah. No, I think that that's you. I don't think that it is it has been or will be possible to simply say I'm a Civil War historian or I'm a World War One historian. Mm-hmm. I think you'll have to say I'm a military historian and have an understanding of a wide array of topics. And I I will say that I feel more comfortable saying that I'm a historian the more topics I read about outside of my base, my home in World War One. Mm. Um, and, you know, 
and I think that interest for me really started because I do come from the Civil War originally. Growing up here, you know, working at Gettysburg, going to college in South Central PA, right. you can't not love the Civil War. Right. Um, it's, it's such an interesting and fascinating topic. But one thing that always stuck to me as I drew closer and closer to studying the British Army was everybody talks about, oh, the Crimean War, you know, and McClellan was an observer there. And how many is it, people have actually read a history of the Crimean War? And, you know, it's, you know, yeah. who can tell me about the Battle of Alma, the Siege of Sebastopol, you know, so it's, it, I think that there's, it, increasingly, we're going to have to have a closer understanding of the era surrounding what we consider to be our primary focus. And, and also just to see, in part, for not only an understanding of the eras in general, but an understanding of the historians who, who study them. Because that interchange of ideas is incredibly, incredibly important. And, and I think that both as academic historians and very vitally as public historians, because it's not the people sitting in ivory towers writing their books that are going to be the face-to-face with the audience. They're going to get you know all those books in all the bookstores and, and people will buy and read them. But the people who are out on battlefields, the people who are in museums, mm-hmm. this is where that interchange also very vitally needs to happen um just just so we help install with the public a better understanding of the conflicts that we're so passionate about studying Mm -hmm. so would you say to some of my listeners as a a kind of a hey try this on for size is is to get out of your comfort zone for a little bit and absolutely and and read something uh, different maybe in the same vein but a different era or or whatever yeah a hundred percent i think that you know and there's no shame in continuing on reading about your era. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, no shame in only going to a conflict atta- associated with your era. If you're a Civil War guy, there's no shame reading about the Crimea or the Mexican-American War or the Franco-Prussian War, right? right. But, you know, you don't necessarily need to retain the, the facts that you would about reading about the Civil War. I hope you would. Um, but... It, Take the themes, Mm -hmm. take those ideas, take what the people are saying about the Mexican-American War, Mm -hmm. and then go back and look at those Mexican-American War vets who are serving in the Civil War and try to justify their experience and try to justify their decision based on who they were 20 years previously and what they saw and what they experienced. Mm -hmm. One guy that I'm particularly interested in um, is a gentleman named uh, Field Marshal Ian Hamilton who was the uh, British observer with the Japanese army in the Russo-Japanese war. And he saw Japanese troops conduct amphibious landings uh, against the Russians and storm Russian defenses at the point of the bayonet. And he said, oh, this, you know, this works, we can do this. And in 1915, 15 years later, he's in command of the Gallipoli expedition. Mm. And you start to see why certain decisions were made based on this officer's previous experiences. Right. You know, there's a justification for those decisions that they're making. So, right. you know, take that, you know, take that uh, with you as you then say, you know, this person was a horrible general. You can you can obs- absolutely say that. But you should also be able to say why, why they made their decisions. You know, what was their thought process? Um, and I think that's where the real strength of someone who's interested in, in this history lies. So. Yeah, that's a great point. And I've always wondered that, before we wrap up here, I've always wondered how, 
when we talk about like McClellan and everyone's like McClellan's got the slows and McClellan is this and McClellan is that. I've often wondered how his time in the Crimea, Crimea may have carried over. And, mm-hmm. and from what he saw in Crimea to what he knew would happen, you know, in his front at, you know, in Antietam or anything like that. I always wondered if Crimea was always in his head, uh, <clears throat> you know, where he remembers that, like that British officer did for, for Gallipoli uh, <clears throat> and taking something away from there. I've always wondered if that was a a factor in some of his decisions, but that, that's a that's a whole other uh that's another monograph in itself. That's another book all No, hundred percent. You know the the psychological impact of Crimea on George McClellan. Uh, mm. You know that'd be an interesting one. But mm. uh, but that that ties back into what you previously said, and that that I agree a hundred and ten percent with that. Um, yeah. With with the before we wrap up here with the future of our our craft and all that, we're going into a a newer era. Uh, we're we're able to you know form our own groups online and chat about this kind of thing and and get this stuff motivated and moving forward a little bit better than we could 10 15 years ago how do you see the new generation of historian pushing uh the ball forward here um i i see it in a few ways i think that as i kind of hinted at previously we need to do a better job uh as historians of taking the blinders off, not only for our eras, but taking the blinders off based on what kind of historian we are. And I'm talking in that regard about public historians and academic historians. Mm -hmm. There's a very fine line uh, to walk between the two, between being a, you know, a PhD historian working at an Ivy League school or being a battlefield guide at Bull Run. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there needs to be an understanding that both of those people are historians and they should be able to share, hey, uh, you know, as the battlefield guide should be able to go to the academic and say, this is what the public is asking. And this is mm-hmm. what the public wants to know and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to discuss ways to, to change that? And, and, you know, and likewise, I think that the public historian shouldn't be relying on the same sources from 50 years ago because they enjoyed that. You know, you could still totally read a regimental history that was written in the 1920s about a regiment that fought at Gettysburg. But, you know, keep in mind that there's updated brand new works coming out of some amazing uh, universities by some amazing authors and by some amazing historians that aren't in academia mm-hmm. that you still need to appreciate and, and stay updated with so that you have the best understanding possible so that you can then formulate that in such a way that the public can understand. And there are some great examples of that going on in history. Uh, Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York yeah. does an amazing job of taking the leading academia of, of 18th century military studies and formulating it in such a way that the public who goes and visits the fort can understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and there's several sites that, that come to mind that really do a great job of, of doing that. And to use that example to combine and open that academic and public history in, into one general historical field, I think is the way we are going and the way we're going to need to to stay. Yeah, that's that's very important because I remember all the walls being up between academics and public historians, and nothing got done. You know, there was no stuff got done, but not the way it should have. You know, and and uh, I think I see those walls coming down. 
little by little, it's starting to break away. And I think we're, we're heading the right direction in that way. And, and, uh, through you and you and I, and, uh, dozens and scores and scores of other public historians working together with academics, uh, you know, I think we can really push this forward, uh, into a new generation. And we're, we're small, (laughs) we're small pieces of the puzzle, but we're still part of the puzzle, you know? Yeah. Well, and everybody is, it doesn't matter if you don't have a degree Right. It doesn't matter if you don't work anywhere near a historic site. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you know if you're a professor, you know, up in northern Alaska, writing about you know the history of Southern Florida. It's it's you know we're all on the same team here, and and people like you, John, who are using social media, are are the reason that we're going to stay relevant as a career field. Um, you know, so don't be don't be afraid to engage with people. You know, if if you've recently read a book that you really appreciate and has given you some great ideas, um, don't be afraid to reach out to the author. Um, right. I, you know, it's we're all on the same team here. Right. So you know, uh, you know, utilize that. We're all here to help each other because it's a hard field. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we're not all here to help each other, it's none of us are going to go anywhere. Uh, yeah, and and I would say to all my listeners who are history majors or or history nerds or just historians you know like like james and i or anyone the the internet has leveled the playing field in my opinion and you can reach out to people by private message or direct message so easily now on twitter on instagram or whatever and you can you know uh find out uh, things about your favorite author or the new book out a lot faster than you could 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, you have to utilize that, especially for all you history students out there. Um, you know, you spend an hour a night just DMing your favorite authors and see what happens because they might, you know, want you to review a book for them or they might want you to, to, to talk with them about something else. You never know. Um, and I know that that's really helped me with with my brand and I know that uh you know it's helped a lot of other students along the way uh but I really enjoy uh being able to sit down and talk with people like James and uh so, some other great historians out there who have really embraced this new era of uh you know basically saying there we need to break down these walls between academia and public history and quit putting ourselves up on a pedestal and just get some work done you know and and James, you're in that same boat with me, and uh, we have uh, some plans we won't release here <laughs> just yet, but we have some ideas uh, that James and I are talking off air about uh, over time, so you'll be hearing a lot more out of us, uh, including I heard we should probably go to Poutine Fest together, but that's a whole different Ooh. story. Yeah, Poutine yeah. Fest. If we could tie in the Canadian War Museum, that would be the trip. Dude, you know. Ottawa, Ottawa, I would love to get to Ottawa. Yeah, that, I'll show you around. I know all the great coffee houses and poutine places. Oh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> but, hey, buddy, I appreciate you being on, and I know yeah, that uh, a lot of my listeners remember you from uh, our little uh, gig in October, talking for 15 minutes or so, and uh, I appreciate uh, you coming on here and uh, letting us know your background and your thoughts on the field. And I know that uh, we're going to get together soon and, and do a lot more. So I appreciate it one more time you, you coming on here, my man. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. All right. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, tune in very soon for the next episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. Take care.